Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I am Ellen, your host, and this is episode 66. And big thanks first up today to our podcast partners for this season, the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference. If you haven't heard about the conference, firstly, where have you been for the past five episodes? I've been talking about them every episode so far this season, but perhaps this is your first time listening to the show, in which case, welcome. It is amazing to have you here. If you're a long-time listener, it's always great to have you here too. And maybe you're just catching up on recent episodes or maybe you're listening to Season 7 in reverse order, starting with Episode 66. Who knows? Podcast listening is amazingly flexible like that, wherever you're coming from. However, you've come to be here today. Let me give you the lowdown on the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference. It is taking place in Melbourne in April 2020, the 28th and 29th of April to be precise. It is a multidisciplinary evidence-based wellbeing and resilience conference. And the program covers psychology, nutrition, workplace health, exercise, community wellbeing, sleep and more. And I'll be there as will many of our previous and future podcast guests. It's going to be a great networking opportunity and a great chance to hear the latest developments in wellbeing and resilience from leading researchers and practitioners. It's going to be super cool, I promise. And one of the presenters that I am particularly looking forward to hearing from at the conference is the delightful Maggie Beer, who is an Australian cook food author, restaurateur, and food manufacturer. And Maggie's going to be talking about the Maggie Beer Foundation and her Appetite for Life program, which was established in 2014 to improve the food experiences for older Australians, particularly those living within aged care homes. Now, I'm not ready for aged care quite yet, but I did have a birthday recently. So I am officially a year older and a year closer to my next big milestone birthday. This one starts with a five and ends in a zero. And at this stage, I'm kind of not too worried about approaching 50. I did see 45 as more of a milestone because I did the maths and I figured out that if I live to 90, then 45 is about the halfway mark. So at 45, I set myself 10 goals. And on my birthday this year, the one just gone, I reviewed my progress towards those goals. So two years in. And I'm pleased to say that I've made some real progress on some of those goals. I'm creating, which was one of my goals. I'm creating this podcast for a start, which is cool. I'm teaching more. That was another goal. I've got lots of work, great workplace programs underway and have done for the last two years and there'll be lots more coming including taking some of my teaching online I've read more fiction which was another goal I've done more exercise 
or at least more consistent exercise. <laughs> and I've sorted out some financial stuff, which was another big goal for me. But there's more goals that I really want to work on further, things like seeing more movies, doing more travel and writing more words, but there's still time for that. But I'm interested, my question for you today is do you set yourself goals? Do you set yourself goals to do more fun stuff, the stuff that lights you up, that inspires you? And maybe that's my birthday challenge to you. I'd like you to set yourself a goal or goals to be a little more you, a little more fully you. Do the things that you know you love to do, but you never quite get there because you're doing all the other stuff. Because this stuff's important. The fun stuff is important. The relaxation stuff is important. The hobby stuff is important. And let me know what you plan to do so that I can cheer you on. That would be a lovely birthday gift for me to hear from you. But I guess now it's time to introduce you to today's guest. I've talked plenty about myself. Let's talk about someone else. And we're talking today with Dr. Sarah Sarkis about life and learning and growing and thriving, not just during the fun stuff, but also through the inevitably challenging times that come our way. Because life isn't all sunshine and lollipops and birthdays, is it? With me today is Dr. Sarah Sarkis, or not exactly with me because she is in beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii, where she's based, and I am in Ballarat here in Australia, but she is today's guest. And Sarah is a psychologist, a writer, and a performance consultant. She has her own private practice and consulting firm, and she's also a performance consultant with the Flow Research Collective, which is a science-based peak performance research and training organization doing some very cool stuff in exploring and understanding the science behind ultimate human performance. Sarah's with me today to talk a bit about challenge, struggle and suffering, something we all experience and how they relate to happiness, resilience and being our best selves. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to speak to you in Hawaii. Hawaii. I'm trying to imagine myself there with you rather than on the other side. I'm in your past because it's Thursday where I am and you are postcards from the future in Friday. We are indeed. Yes. In fact, we're well into Friday. It's midday here. So I know that's always a spin out the time zone. I've said that before on the podcast. I'm sure my listeners are used to my (laughs) complete inability to kind of comprehend that we can actually be talking and having different days. I know. Sarah, can you start just by telling us, I've given you a little brief intro there, but I'd I'd love to hear a bit more about you, your work and your clients. Sure. You know, I live in Hawaii now, but I came here via Massachusetts. I was born and raised in Massachusetts and lived there for 37 years. I spent most of my schooling, both undergrad and my doctoral program in Washington, D.C., And sort of in between there, I went back to Massachusetts and got a master's from a college uh, in Massachusetts. So when I was in Massachusetts, I started a private practice and after all my training and all the hoops were jumped through and I opened a private practice and I simultaneously was getting into uh, in my own life, sort of interested in how like food, mood, and medicine, and hormones worked. I was just sort of in a stage in my life that I was curious about that. And it started to kind of bleed into the type of work that I did. 
So when I was in Massachusetts, I had this thriving and really rewarding private practice where I worked with all adults and we did kind of the insight oriented work around like our past and trauma and our neurobiology. And then I worked with all these really great, great clinicians in the area, physicians, naturopaths, functional medicine doctors to help people kind of unravel you know, chronic pain patterns, thyroid, all of that. So that really then when I moved to Hawaii informed, I was pretty clear when I moved here. I was like, I want to work on the spectrum of wellness. I do not want to spend all my time looking at pathology. Mm-hmm. And so my practice now really consists of, you know, now I'm like mid-career. So the luxury of having been in the gig for a longer stretch of time is that you really have some skill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I came here, I sort of replicated that first part of my practice in Boston. And then I had a young son at the time and he's matured and sort of needs me less in that way. And so over the last, say, seven years, I started then challenging myself in new ways. I I started the blog and then I got hooked up with Stephen Kotler, the Flow Research Collective. That's more in this last year. But they all really tie into this pivotal moment where I made a decision that I was going to focus on wellness. I wasn't going to look for what was wrong with people anymore, that I was sort of done with that game as much as I could be. I do work in a system where people get diagnoses and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, that was like the pivotal moment for me. And it's interesting, isn't it? Just that kind of, it's like a mindset shift really to be able to say, I mean, I've never worked myself in that in inverted commas, pathological area. So never worked as a a clinical psych, but even, and I'd be interested in your take on this, whether you feel that within psychology as a field, there's starting to be a bit of that mindset shift as well to say, let's start look at, I don't know, that's, you know, the birth of positive psychology. Let's look at how we can help everybody to live better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't equate that with happy. So I'll I'll be clear there. I always tell all my patients, like I really had to sort of early on and it made me kind of look at all my own dynamics of codependence and pathological accommodating and all these things inside myself. Because when I was a new clinician, I had this feeling that people had to be happy. They had to feel good. That's what therapy was supposed to do. And I had to quickly become comfortable with that. Like I wasn't in the business of happiness. I'm in the business of growth and change and self-awareness. And that sort of freed me up. And then, yeah, I mean, for me, I got to tell you, I went through, well, let's think I went four years undergrad, three years of academic training at the doctoral level, two years at the master's level, and I did three years of training post-doctoral. So we're well into the decade, Mark. I never heard the word positive psychology. Mm -hmm. I never Mm -hmm. had a single solitary class on wellness. And I was really steeped in pathology. In fact, the beginning of my career, I focused, my dissertation was a forensic focus. I worked for years within the forensic setting. So I was, you know, in a world where you were looking for kind of what went wrong. And first of all, I'll say this, it's amazing training. I could not be as effective as I am now with this new mindset lens had I not known all of this. It also prepared me for, you know, there are certain 
disorders that are really real, like that need, you know, and a lot of my training took place in patient psychiatric units with the chronically mentally ill and them allowing me to work with them all those years in that training really taught me a ton. So I have a lot of gratitude, but yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, I didn't know about the field of positive psychology till probably, I mean, probably till about five years ago when I read one of Stephen Kotler's books, right? And mm-hmm. he's really a good source of his roots come from this movement. And that's when I really turned my attention. Now, long before that, I had made the move toward, I was always trying to see how many medications could we get you off of? What's the way that we can do that? Is it possible? So it had been a slow arc, but now, yeah, my mindset is just so different. And obviously, here's the other thing. With the shift in mindset, so too does the people that began coming to see me. So it's also that wherever you point your focus is where you're going to land. So I was increasingly talking this language that was going to attract people that were looking for a similar type of work. So it was really attracting your tribe, I suppose, is what, you know, it's what they talk about in marketing terms, isn't it? It's the same sort of thing. And it is an interesting... hundred percent. Yeah, almost unconscious. You didn't necessarily set out to do that, perhaps, but just by the nature of the change in your own focus. And then, as you say, you know, the power of language and Mm -hmm. perhaps the message that you are putting out there and you attract your tribe as a consequence. Yeah. And you're 100% right. It is. I mean, the unconscious, don't get me started or I'll hijack the whole program (laughs) and we'll end up only talking about the unconscious. The unconscious is my jive. It's my favorite place to be with people. And you're right that all of these micro shifts along the way were completely unconscious. I did not consciously map out. There've been a few pivot points that have been really conscious for me, but for the most part, I'm driving blind like the rest of them. <laughs> Which is what's fascinating about careers, isn't it? The number of people yes. I've had conversations with about that very topic, you know, how did you come to do what you're doing now? And I'm like, well, it wasn't really intentional. I just was heading in a certain direction and opportunities popped up and something spoke to me and I followed that path and that's where I've ended up. So Sarah, tell us a bit about the work that you're doing now. Yeah. So now I have a private practice here in Honolulu, where I see individuals, all adults, and sort of working on the spectrum of like wellness, self-awareness. So in Boston, like where I was living in that part of Massachusetts, you know, there's 4 million people. In all the Hawaiian Islands, there's a million. So, and in Honolulu, on Oahu, which is the biggest or the most populated island, I think there's like close to 750,000. So it's a tight-knit community of people here. And so over time, my population sort of began to kind of self-correct to be like, you know, groups of like high level professionals who were looking to optimize their wellness, right? And they knew that exploring their psychology is a huge component of that, knowing how and why you tick the way that you do. So I kind of built a little niche market here doing that and it's super rewarding. And then simultaneously, like as I kind of shifted in this direction, I did make one conscious choice several years ago that 
changed things a lot for me that I see in retrospect. I didn't know it at the time, but I mm-hmm. did have this conscious thought that I was maybe like restless in my practice. I'd been here for probably at the time, like six years. I noticed that my patient population my demographics were 75% female and 25% male. So I just sort of wondered to myself if I flipped those over the next year, what would it be like to have a mostly male practice? That shift forced me to learn this whole new language around like feelings and stuff like, you know, instead of like talking directly about their feelings, men will often talk about like performance and stamina and endurance. And they talk about all these secondary aspects. So, you know, then that obviously would drive me much more into the world of looking at like performance consulting. And then I just got increasingly interested. I was always really interested in group dynamics and all of that, but it just started getting me really interested in the world that unfolds within these corporate environments. And so that's a lot of the work that I do with the flow research currently. So I have this group of private practice patients here that I see brick and mortar face to face. And then I have this sort of boutique, but growing practice of consulting, consulting with executives kind of all over the world. And that's really rewarding and like a whole new set of skills. And then I have the blog, which that's my love, my happy space. That's just done entirely from passion. Yeah, I know that feeling. (laughs) Exactly. And that's kind of what it looks like right now. You know, I'm definitely in flux and in transition and I couldn't even imagine what my career life will look like in the next 365 days because I couldn't imagine that it would be where it is now one year ago. Which is exciting, isn't it? Is that exciting yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. It's, real, it's really exciting. And with excitement always comes its bedmate, right? Of sort of fear and other elements, a loss, little bit of loss of control, a little bit of loss in general, because my private practice face-to-face may increasingly become more and more boutique as something else. So there's lots of feelings, but excitement definitely leads the pack. Yeah, I remember somebody described the uh, anticipation as being the mix of both excitement and fear at the same time. And for me, that I think just articulated it beautifully that, you know, when we anticipate something, there is that kind of mix of this is really exciting, but it's also kind of scary at the same time. Yeah, it's one of the things that I stress to all of my clients and patients that, um, you know, one of the reasons I was able to free myself from the burden of happy as this goal even really like content is because first of all, I began to see that happy is just another cage. It's just sort of something we then cage or like good is just another cage. Pretty is just skinny, like these things that we kind of think, oh, when we're destination addicts, when I get there, I'll be fill in the blank. So I sort of really started to see that in my work, see it in myself. And then on top of that, the emphasis on self-awareness being the goal really, really became the goal, right? Like Mm -hmm. that was what I wanted for people. And so, you know, those two components really shaped this chapter. 
Mm, I love that too. I love that notion of because I in my coaching work, I think, and I don't know that I'd articulated it quite that way, but it's kind of become meaningful for me just as you've said that, that we know that destinations are never going to help because there's nothing to say that you will necessarily get to that fill in the blanks when you reach that destination. That's, you know, really a bit of a recipe for dissatisfaction. But I've always had a passion personally for self-awareness and always worked with people around self-awareness. So thinking about that as a kind of a framework in itself, yeah, that's really meaningful. Yeah. And emotional flexibility really becomes the goal. And so when we start to develop that capacity for emotional flexibility, our emotional tolerance goes from being, you know, fairly myopic. And when we narrow our emotional aperture, it narrows proportionally on both sides. So you do lose the fear, but you lose joy. And like when you lose risk, you lose bliss. And so they close in like this. So I always think about it as like you're trying to stretch somebody's emotional capacity. And a lot of it just follows the same principles that physical training does. Like I was an I was athletic growing up and stuff. And that principle was always like time under tension. Just time under tension builds the capacity, right? So for me, it's been really helpful to think about that that's the objective, is that you can feel tremendous loss and anxiety and sadness and loneliness, all these feelings that you can't, well, you can avoid them in life, but they come at a tremendous cost while enjoying happiness, bliss, love. So I think about it as emotional flexibility. Yeah, which leads us really nicely into our conversation. We've already had a good conversation, but a bit more of the crux of today's conversation, which is about struggle and suffering, really, and what that brings to us. What is the role of struggle and suffering in our life? In my practice, it's talked about and looked at and felt together and experienced together as teachers. Feelings and experiences and emotions that our teachers. And for those who can observe, everything becomes a platform to grow and learn from and connect through. So, you know, that's how simple it is for me. And it's entirely unavoidable. There's really a mental illness where mania is the absence of having these kinds of cyclical feelings, right? It's a euphoria. And we can see that the brain doesn't do that very well for too long before it goes sideways, right? Our brain is designed to have cycles, just like sleep cycles do, mood cycles, for us, menstrual cycles. So the brain follows this same system. So to me, they're totally normal parts of the human experience and they are teachers. So they are part of what we're supposed to experience. We're supposed to experience the pain and the suffering and the downs in order not only to experience the positives, the joy, the bliss, but also to learn from this. Is that what it means? Yeah. I mean, I would, for me, I would stay away from the word supposed to, (laughs) but I'm just like a stickler for words, right? Like (laughs) we're here to I guess, hear how I think, right? So I don't know if we're supposed to, because that gets into that there's like a grand order. And I can only 
my job is sort of to be in this moment with people and this very moment that we have together, whether we should be here or we shouldn't be here, whether this was divine or totally ordinary, this is what's happening. And my experience is that if we stay in that space together, a lot of healing just happens right there. So bringing that component of mindfulness to it. Yeah, and connection as well. That's staying in the present. Yeah. So in terms then of the struggle and suffering, what what is it that really, because I, I think we've sort of got a, a hint of that there, what is it that is so difficult for people? Why do we find that so hard? Because it's really hard. <laughs> Like we're, I always say to people like, you know, somebody will, I'll be working with somebody for, you know, a long stretch of time and then life happens. Like they get sick, a parent dies, a child goes off to college, a divorce happens, infidel, life just happens. Right. And, you know, they're like, I just feel awful. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it hurts because it hurts. It takes what it takes, right? And life does that. It takes from us, you know, what it takes. And there's no avoiding it. We use defense mechanisms. You know, when we hear people, oh, that's a defense mechanism. And I often try to, when I hear people in my line of work, when you're working with me, when I hear people use sort of words in like a layman's way, right? I'm always like, well, let me make sure you know what that means. And like in this case, what I've found doesn't matter the defense mechanism, humor, denial, avoidance, booze, pills, sex, starvation. When you really get under the hood, they are all in an effort to feel less pain. And once you kind of know that and see that, and you've seen it over and over again, you can meet someone there, right? You can just be present in it with them. And, you know, my experience has been that for the vast majority of us, slowly over time, as we work through these things and we have sort of gain understanding and we collaborate with somebody who also understands that mechanisms that these self-correct, you know, once we realize like, oh, the thing you're doing is a decoy. It's never the crime. It's always the cover-up. It's a decoy Mm. to keep you from your pain. But once we get, okay, so let's look at the pain, then a lot of times it's not that it's not hard work for them, right? Especially when we get into the realm of um, addictive solutions to pain. And they are very seductive because they're effective. So I get it, right? I'm not saying I wouldn't, if there was a magic pill that could create long-term happiness, I can't say that I wouldn't be the first one in line to try it. (laughs) Um, I am fully human, but I get it, you know? But underneath it all are these efforts to try to avoid pain, which is really unavoidable. Mm. So it's that self-awareness or that awareness of our behaviour, what we're doing in engaging in any of those activities, once we have kind of perhaps a a self-awareness about that, that what I'm doing is trying to avoid feeling stuff that hurts, that's uncomfortable, and once we have that awareness 
as you say, it's almost like that's the, the starting point, I suppose. It's a starting point. I'm glad you use that word. It's the starting point because awareness alone, we all know very wise people who continue to do over and over again, sabotaging behaviors, right? So awareness, wisdom, it doesn't correlate with change per se, right? Really what it is, is it's returning, it's allowing the person to actually return to the point of injuries, right? The things about the pain, the feelings, the experiences, the losses, the traumas, uh, and I follow the Gabor Mate trauma. Trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. So it's really going back to the feeling state of it, learning again how to have that emotional flexibility, not having to numb our feelings that ultimately results in the change. Awareness brings you to the door. Yeah. But there's a little lot of work to do. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a party <laughs> inside. It's a party inside and awareness will bring you to the party. But, you know, the rest of it is vulnerability, courage, bravery, grit. And is that what we lose if we try to just kind of fast forward through this process? If we try to either stay in those defences, those activities that prevent us from feeling or somehow try to fast forward through the feeling part of it, no matter how uncomfortable it is, that we then lose those opportunities around grit and resilience and Mm -hmm. full breadth, I suppose, of of emotional experience. Yeah, that wide spectrum. Yeah, so everything's got a cost-benefit analysis. And usually what I tell people as we start to unravel their defense mechanisms or we start to unravel the early neurobiology that shaped why they snuggled into particular defense mechanisms, because everything makes sense once you're under the hood. You know, we're not as baffling as we think we are. Like, oh, why? I'm so messed up. It's like, actually, it all kind of makes sense. (laughs) You're just a human. (laughs) And it makes sense. Like, when we understand your story, like, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. It seems like a very reasonable, like, paint by number that you would end up in adulthood orbiting in this way. Again, depathologizing. So there is a cost-benefit analysis to everything. And especially with certain defense mechanisms, they're graded or they're weighted. Resiliency and grit, toughness, tenacity, atrophies. It atrophies when we rely too much on avoiding our pain, fast-forwarding through it, minimizing it, laughing it away. It's great to laugh it away. Humor is a very high. Defense mechanisms are um, scaled. And and, and humor routinely ranks as one of the better choices in the bunch that we have, right? Mm. But yet, the funniest people, when you look in the world of comedy right now, right? The funniest people, you know they've done deep analytic work. And I don't mean psychoanalysis, but they've done deep inside of themselves work. Usually their best work comes after a personal crisis, an existential crisis that brings them to their bedrock. They're forced to take some time away and they come back. And that's really sort of true for most of us. But yeah, when you avoid that, you know, it's a muscle. So it atrophies. So there is no 
Well, there's no benefit, I suppose, ultimately, if we want to live our best lives, be our best selves, there is no benefit really to trying to fast forward. There's short-term gains, right? Yeah. There's short-term <laughs> gains. And listen, sometimes you got to assess your life and make the hard, cold, like you got three kids at home, husband walked out or died. You got to get up in the morning. I'm thinking denial's a decent choice. <laughs> like I'm thinking a little bit of use of avoidance here and there. So, you know, this is scaled to your life and the time you're in. And our defense mechanisms sort of work for us until they don't. And when they've outlived their usefulness, it becomes obvious in the way that we feel. But yeah, for the most part, when we think about sort of long-term gains, trying to skip or fast forward or numb any of our experiences has a cost. Yeah. It's worth knowing the fine print on that contract because there's always fine print. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you mentioned the word depathologize just before. And I know because you have written a blog post and I'll, I'll link to that in our show notes as well, where you talked a little bit about the desire for us, whether professionally or as a society to kind of diagnose and medicalize some of these human experiences and an emphasis perhaps on doing that. What, what's your take on having to kind of label things as anxiety or depression or, or giving something a label in order to, I don't know, understand it or deal with it? Yeah. I'm always like both relieved and daunted by this kind of question. But I, I appreciate <laughs> Well, it's, it's a complex one, right? And I always appreciate the opportunity to like fumble around and answer because it's an important question, right? So on the one hand, I'm like a woman of science and I'm classically trained through like a rigorous academic legacy that, you know, has its own training. I learned the DSM manual. I operate in that world, especially when I have to associate with insurance companies. So on the one hand, I worked in psychiatric hospitals, a lot of them. And so there's a practical side of me that understands its relevance. I think it's important that if a patient is in an inpatient psychiatric unit and they have, you know, disorganized paranoid schizophrenia, that there be a diagnosis for the next person who's going to receive this case in the community. And there's a shared language around what that means. You know, you're looking for, you know, psychosis, positive and negative symptoms. You have in your head a schema of like, mm. okay, this is what this means, right? Yeah. I see that. In the trenches of being in the human experience hour after hour with people, for the clients that I work with, it serves zero function. And I have found over the years that for the vast majority of us where we are, you know, in the middle of the bell curve, right? We're sort of in like Mark Epstein's language, like we're just suffering the stuff of everyday living it actually ends up being a hindrance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when I work with people and they've had like a long history of like, well, I have anxiety and I have this and I have that. And it almost sort of, I have to spend a lot of time undoing their 
unconscious and conscious, covert and overt beliefs around what that means for them. And especially when people think like, well, you know, I have anxiety because my mother did. And so it's true. There's a genetic component in that psychological tendencies travel through families. They travel through generations. But it's also true that as we understand epigenetics more and more deeply, it's completely true that really only 10% of that is governed by our genetics, that Mm. so much more and our environment and our neurobiology and our imprinting and trauma along with tons of other things. I'm just taking the time to say the things that are in my wheelhouse. I could go on and on about the things that impact this, really shape our epigenetics. And it shapes us even before we're born within the uterus, right? So a lot of times I got to spend all this time helping people to see that there's a lot more space for self-empowerment than they previously believed. And so I'm trying to undo elements of the system, which nobody set out to make people feel shackled Mm. to their limitations. Like nobody here had nefarious motives. It is a byproduct of the way the system shuffled out. And the system now is big and it's multi-determined and it's part of our economic system now, right? So it's really complex. And I always at the end feel like, oh, I probably bastardized the complexity there, but like that's my best effort to give an authentic answer to that that isn't Pollyanna-ish and also isn't calamity focused. Oh, it's a conspiracy. Right. So, and I think that's so fascinating that you say that, but I've I've thought particularly as a, a parent, you know, looking at kids and who might receive a diagnosis of, or anything really, whether it's anxiety and anxiety is such a tricky one because we have such, you know, we have a lay person's concept of that. We have lay language around anxiety and yet then there's also a clinical diagnosis of anxiety and we can all be anxious at different times. You can be an anxious person, whether that's a clinical anxiety or not is a whole other thing. And for me looking, you know, as a a parent, especially of my children are 11 and eight, so that primary years and, you know, you see other kids and you just think, is it helpful? I know sometimes it's helpful for a parent. It's helpful for a parent to have had a diagnosis because it helps to explain and give them language and give them structure and a starting point to understand why they're getting the behavior they're getting. But at the same time, I look at the kid and I think, how helpful is this for you growing up to have this particular mindset about who you are. I almost feel like it's a limiting mindset starting out as a young person to say, well, this is who I am and therefore I will always struggle with this or I will always, this will be harder or or there's no point in me even trying this because that's not going to work for me. When, as you say, you know, we know so much now about growth and development and change and what we are able to do and and whether that's kind of just from the identity we take on or or even as you say you know in terms of our neurobiology and what we might be able to change over time yeah i mean it's such a great point and i definitely over the years have become more and more 
clear about my own boundaries on that, right? Both as a clinician and a mother of a latency age child, the 11, 10, 12-year-old age. And yeah, I mean, even just the word to know at that young age, like I have an anxiety disorder versus really trying to emphasize that like these are very typical feelings and our body is actually wired to have. And I understand too, like I don't want any listeners to think like, oh, she's in la la land. Like some kids are really suffering. It's true. It is true. Um, And there are cases. That's why I tried to be really nuanced in that discussion. There are cases where it reaches a level that is really decidedly sick, unwell, and it doesn't behoove any of us to pretend when it gets to that level. So, you know, for all the listeners, like, rest assured, my patients would attest, you know, I'm very frank and honest about that. I say to people, like, if I become genuinely concerned that perhaps something more nefarious is happening here, I'll always tell you. But until then, we're going to assume that your vessel can do this. It can do hard things. Mm. You can do this. And a very small handful of times since I've had a private practice, have I changed my mind about someone? Yeah. And we always have to be open to that possibility, don't we? Always, especially in, I don't like to think of myself as an expert. I don't like to think of myself as like different than my patients, right? Because I just feel like we're all just human. Uh, I've learned this skill. Maybe I had some aptitude for it, right? But they see us as experts. And that comes with a lot of vulnerability and a lot of trust. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to come in and really kind of tell your tale. Yeah. Sarah, I think we sort of touched on this a little earlier, but when, we, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to struggle, and we're talking mostly about everyday experiences. You mentioned before, you know, divorce and deaths and just life. I mean, one of the things that I think we don't probably talk about as much as we should are things like financial difficulties, which is something that strikes so many people. Or just how stressful raising kids is. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that's also marked with tremendous joy. It's punctuated at both ends of the spectrum, right? Yeah. So we experience all of these every day, no matter who we are, to different degrees. But everyone's life will be punctuated by some level of stress and distress around a particular experience. So we can't avoid it. What do we do with it for starters? You know, obviously people come to see you (laughs) as a starting point, but you know, if you had to give tips and strategies to somebody who might be listening to that and just going, yeah, my life's really, really hard at the moment. It's really crappy. What do I do? You know, where would you point them? I always say five things when people are suffering. When we think about it, like my whole life has taken place with my patients. They are who I spend all of my time with when I'm not with my family and friends. So I don't like that they suffer. I just don't feel burdened to like change it for them. Yeah. Right. So I always tell them five things. And since they're already in therapy, I don't have to tell them this one. So for your listeners, I'm going to say six things. <laughs> Contact somebody that sounds like, and nowadays there's like no end to how many 
forms of this you can get all the way from like people that are very metaphysical to people that are really kind of like trained the way I am kind of in the old history of becoming a psychologist, right? To life coaches, to consultants, to body workers, acupuncture, like find your jive, but find somebody who you think that you could spend six months with weekly connecting and talking and observing yourself. So that's one. And then there's sort of five things. I always think about like if somebody said you have to like label yourself, which I'm sure my personality has already revealed that I resist that. But if I had to, I'd say like I provide a place where people can have like truly integrated psychology, right? So it's integrated into a sense of looking for wellness. So I say sleep, movement, nutrition, hydration. Here's the one everybody likes the least, mindfulness. Stillness has changed me in ways that movement never did. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So for me, if you land in my office, you're going to hear that constantly. And lots of people, not, not lots of people, a hundred percent of the people resisted at first. Eventually, because I am relentless and tenacious, I wear them down and I joke with them. I'm like, eventually I'm going to wear you down. And by the way, in the meantime, it's not like you won't do it. And I just say, okay, move on. Then I make you look at why you won't do it. So like either way, we're going to get data from this. <laughs> You're get there. You might as well just go home and sit still for a few minutes. It'll be a much happier experience of spending time with me. So eventually, you know, I, I have had a very high conversion rate to having that capacity. And over the years, I've loosened it. I used to be more rigid. I wanted them to do the mindfulness-based stress reduction type that I learned, uh, John Cabot Zinn style, but I've gotten flexible over the years. So now, you know, like I always say, my husband's gone to do meditation when he's at the golfing range. So, like, you know, now I'm much more flexible. That comes with middle yeah. age. So <laughs> it's a joy of catching me uh, when I'm 44. <laughs> so, those five things, that's where to start. They'll make a yeah. huge difference. I mean, it's not complicated, it's just not easy. Yeah. Yeah. And why is it? Well, two th- firstly, it's really fascinating that you say that because I ask that question a lot of people coming from all different perspectives and philosophies and experience and work and the client group that they work with. And almost always it's the same things. In fact, one of my guests encapsulated, I don't think she actually came up with this term. It was somebody else, but she passed it on and I now use it as well. It's about taking your meds. So mindfulness, exercise, diet, sleep. And then what did we miss out on? What was the fifth one there that you had? Hydration. They probably Hydration. throw it in with um, nutrition. It probably goes in with nutrition. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, those same things and, and everyone from all of these different perspectives have these same things. And they're certainly what I advocate for my clients. But again, interestingly, similarly to you, it took my own experience of doing these things 100%. to really be able to deliver that to clients or make that recommendation to clients with any kind of real conviction conviction and passion yeah a hundred percent I mean my my life has informed my career more than my career has ever informed my life like I am a better 
clinician because of my life experiences than my training. I mean, this is, it's an easy win. It's not a photo finish. It's not like, yeah, I can't tell, you know, the training and I loved my training and, um, but it's different. Mm. And I think that's what comes with age as well, doesn't it? You know, that flexibility that you talked about earlier, you know, we get to a point where we've, we've sort of done stuff, we've tried stuff, but also our life is informing this stuff that just makes it easier to, whether it's be present, to be flexible with clients, to be able to say, you know what, I don't really know if this is going to work for you, but let's give it a go and, or let's try this. And rather than feeling like we need to follow a process or follow the books or do it the right way. Being able to admit that we don't know, being able to be uncertain is a huge emotional and psychological achievement. It's at the epicenter of a lot of the sort of control-based disorders that we look at from hypochondriasis to OCD to elements of depression. I mean, I really could, to, to mania, I could go on and on just being able to get to a place in your life, and some of it is maturity, where you're just okay being like, I don't know. I mean, let's try it. <laughs> Which is interesting. I actually, in, in the intro to an earlier episode, in fact, not that long ago in the podcast, I mentioned there's a guy called Tim Urban who writes a blog called Wait But Why, which you may know of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of his interesting recent pieces in this massive series that he's writing called The Story of Us was around, it's called The Thinking Ladder. And he talks about different styles of thinking and the point at which we kind of reach a, I suppose, psychological peak would be the way I'd frame it up. And it says, um, and that's thinking like a scientist. And the idea that as a scientist, whether or not actual scientists do this is another matter, but as a scientist, the idea is that we go into the world saying, I don't know the answer to anything. I don't know the answer. (laughs) And therefore I will just form hypotheses and test them. And I'm entirely open to the possibility that I, that hypothesis is wrong, but we're going to learn from whatever we do. Yes. And just like that metaphor, when we begin to manipulate the I don't know to fit, I want a particular outcome. Psychologically, you get the same thing. You might get compliance. I want the outcome. Okay, so the outcome is I want to feel better. And if that's the outcome, you might get it, but at what cost? What are you willing to give up and do versus a starting question of I don't know how I'm going to feel better? It's just a totally different approach. Mm. to the journey. Yeah. And I think it's an important one. It's been for me who, somebody who, you know, had a long love affair in lots of different ways in my life with certainty. I was somebody people thought was very certain all the time. I spoke that way. I didn't like not knowing many, in many ways I landed, I mean, you know, I'm happy with this, but I landed in the field of psychology because I wasn't willing to be uncertain. You know, I sort of at the end of college was weighing two things. I was like, I could move to New York and try like becoming a writer or I could become a psychologist. And I didn't like that feeling of not knowing how the writing thing would pan out. And, you know, that's a sliding doors moment. Who knows how my life would have looked had I at 23 been more comfortable not knowing. So I I really understand that 
drive to try to have answers. But as I've softened that ability inside myself, I see that it's it's really a critical intersection that I land there with every person I work with at some point. And it look that intersection looks different for every person. Like the maverick and the adrenaline junkie isn't exempt from contending with that intersection of what do you do when you don't know and that there's uncertainty, right? Everybody faces that intersection. And I'm wondering whether that brings us back really to this idea of struggle and suffering and being present with that, that yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, we don't like it. Yes, life is hard right now. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I don't know if it's even fixable. And being okay to sit with that and see what happens next, just to try different things. Yeah. To experiment. Yeah. I mean, I always say when people are expressing uncertainty, if you're expressing uncertainty to your friends, like layman's instinct is to like show people, no, look, there's all these boundaries of things you do know. And I understand that instinct, right? But like, you don't pay me to behave like a friend. You're paying me to do something very different. And have you not know that I'm doing it, by the way. So when people are expressing uncertainty to me, my reply is always, yeah, I mean, I think I can understand feeling that way. And I don't know how this will all shuffle out either, but I can be here while it shuffles out. And just have that connection. And try things together. You're just present in it. You know, I'm not, I'm, I can't fix that. But I can share that I, first of all, understand the instinct. It's totally normal to feel afraid. That's a prerequisite for bravery. So it's like they go hand in hand. So it's okay to feel that way. I understand. And I'm not going to push you into a solution. I'm just going to let you experience what it feels like to not know and what that brings up for you and how it changes your behavior. And and we're just going to observe it. And maybe help you let go of needing a certain outcome. You know, I can't do any of that, right? Over time, the exposure to the emotional uncertainty and not having to rely on a narrowing or, you know, all the other defense mechanisms we talked about earlier in the hour, it does the work. It's time under tension. It's just time under tension. And sometimes the tension is uncertainty. Sometimes it's illness. Sometimes it's loss. But that's where we grow. Yeah, it really is. Sarah, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with me today. I I do feel like we could go on and on and talk about a range of different topics. We'll have to have a part two. We touched on lots of part twos. We did. We did. A lot of intro into the next conversation. So we will definitely do that. I do really appreciate both your time and your thoughts, your sharing, both your personal sharing and obviously also your professional sharing, because as we said, they do go hand in hand. And I think that's hopefully one of the joys for our listeners is that they get to learn a little bit about the people behind the profession 
as well. Yes. Especially that's like, you know, every voyeur's dream is to try to know their shrink. So (laughs) that must pluck an extra special cord that I'm happy to pluck. Excellent. Thanks for having me. This was great. You're very welcome. And I'm sure that all of our listeners will go away with something to think about, something to ponder in terms of their own, not only their struggle and suffering, but their growth and their own personal development and the where to from here without needing to control it, just to let it be and happen. Yeah, great. I hope so. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sarah Sarkis. They are great tips that Sarah's shared, her six things for us all to consider when we're struggling in life. And we've included those six tips in the show notes for the episode so that you can go back and revisit them. I also love Sarah's ideas about getting comfortable with letting go of the outcome when life's thrown us a curveball and really just learning to be in the moment and letting life unfurl as it will. It's not easy. It's definitely something that I've been working on myself in recent years and it absolutely does help. But it can be a hard habit to break, especially if you've lived maybe decades of your life already with a strong need for control. But Sarah's suggestion that we do that kind of work with the help of a therapist is a great one because you're not doing it on your own then. It's not such lonely work. If you'd like a transcript of today's conversation or you'd like to find out more about Sarah, her work and her writing, you will find links to all of those things in the show notes for this episode. Visit potential.com.au forward slash podcast and links to Sarah's social channels are all there too. She is on Facebook and on Instagram where she shares some really great and helpful and inspiring content. Thank you once again today to our partners for this season of the podcast, the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference. To find out more about the conference, head to weh.org.au. There you'll also find the conference program and a run sheet for the two-day event. There's profiles of the speakers and the topics they'll be presenting. And of course, that's where you can register to attend the conference as well. Early bird registration is available until the 28th of February, 2020. Next week on the show, I will be speaking with one of the presenters at the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference, Associate Professor Peggy Kern, and we'll be talking about creating a thriving workplace, which is a favourite topic of mine, something that I speak about a lot. So here's a little sneak peek from Peggy. A good workplace program is actually being aware of the people within the organisation and is actually saying, what are the needs that we actually have and how can we actually support those well? It begins with an organization being committed to creating a great place to work and each employee, no matter their position, believing that they play a role in making this a great organization. One thing I see in a lot of organizations is this blame. Leaders will blame the employees. Employees are like, well, it's the system or it's some of these things. And it's actually understanding that we are that system (laughs) and that everything that we do, how I show up, how I interact with others and whatnot is actually part of what either makes this a great place to work or a miserable place to work. That's next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'll also have some news next week on some new and exciting up and coming stuff in the potential psychology world. So join me then. In the meantime, stay safe, go forth and thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential.